to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulick. And as always, we like to talk about things related to business continuity, disaster planning, crisis management, COVID-19, anything that's relatable to uh, business continuity and disasters and crises. If there's a topic you'd like us to talk about, don't forget, please send me an email. Uh, go to the page, uh, the Voice America page for the show. There is a button. Send the host an email. I do get all emails, and I do respond to everything. So if you have a topic or you want to be on the show, please let me know. Same thing with if you want to advertise a product or service on the show uh, related to business continuity, of course, or disaster planning, please let me know, and I can send you some information on that as well. I'm going to jump straight into uh, part two today of a topic I had started, uh, I guess this would it would have aired almost uh, four or five weeks ago for the International Emergency Management Society newsletter that came out. And it, uh, if you're unfamiliar with teams, it's a, uh, a group of uh, various chapters from around the globe made up a lot of uh, academics who uh, do a lot of research in emergency management and disaster management. Um, obviously, there's a lot of uh, nurses and doctors that are involved, professors. You know, it's a very academic uh, audience, and I'm uh, on the advisory board of directors for that organization, have been since 2010. And in my first episode, I went through uh, this newsletter that came out in April, um, and I kind of purposely waited to uh, do this episode because it's rather interesting to see what some of these chapters um, that uh, you've already heard uh, some shows from the uh, the first episode, which I believe aired June 18th. So uh, feel free to go back and have a listen to our first episode. You know, what they had to say and what was happening then. And now uh, that you're listening to today, today's show, uh, kind of comparing it to what you're hearing in the news today, what's happening. Um, as of today, as I record this, uh, we do have um, uh, roughly almost 8 million you know, cases of coronavirus uh, around the globe with 430 uh, plus thousand deaths. So uh, comparing that to how some of these uh, countries responded back in uh, mid-April, end of April, uh, is rather interesting to see what's changed. Um, and just as, as I did in the first episode, I'm reviewing some of the articles that were submitted in this newsletter that come from all these chapters from uh, the, the team's organization. And I know we already talked about a couple of these. And let me just double check my notes here. Who did I talk about? Uh, we talked, we went through the, um, uh, the China uh, section, South Korea, Canada. We talked about um, some information from South Africa that provided by the editors, of which uh, I have to uh, thank Roman Tandlich and Kellyanne Frith for putting this newsletter together. 
usually uh, I'm involved with the uh, special edition newsletter, but um, unfortunately, uh, work commitments uh, at the time because of coronavirus didn't allow me to uh, participate in this edition. So thank you to them. Uh, so we we talked about a few and got some ideas, and I tried not to duplicate uh, bits of information from country to country. You know, tried to give a different perspective on what was happening in each one. Um, you know, some I didn't want to go through the number of deaths in every country. I didn't if every country was doing the same thing, let's say by closing borders, then I wasn't going to repeat it for everybody. So I'm going to try continue that on with the remaining countries, and I probably might have to talk a little faster in this one uh, episode than I did the last one, because I thought I could get through half of it, and I didn't. Um, I guess there's so much to say about this. <clears throat> so the first country I'm going to talk about or the next one, uh, I should say, really, in the newsletter that comes up, is The Philippines by uh, Anjali Medina. And Anjali I met as the uh, coordinator of the Teams Conference in Manila a couple of years ago. So, hello, Anjali. I hope you are doing well and staying safe. And uh, let's see let's see what um, uh, Philippines had, had done. Um, to, at the outset of the this um, coronavirus outbreak. It's interesting that uh, some of the dates that Anjali provides where the Philippines uh, was actually uh, doing some uh, responsive activities are uh, the latter half of January. And I'm, I'm sure many of you will be aware that the WHO, uh, the, or the WHO, I should say, uh, declare, didn't declare a pa global pandemic until March 11th, 2020. And yet, at the end of January, the Philippines was already uh, quite involved with uh, quite a few things. Their their Department of Health, I think that's the name of what they call it. Yes, the DOH. Um, at the end of January, they were reporting cases. Um, and right away, uh, they had uh, started to ensure continuous support to Filipinos in China, ensure transportation and quarantine of 14 days, uh, for F Philippines uh, that were coming from, uh, I think it was Hubei province uh, in China. Um, they proposed temporary restrictions on visas for travelers. And, uh, you know, they started putting uh, out advisories and communications to their citizens. You know, uh, they started uh, uh, specific isolation rooms um, in hospitals. Um, what did they call it here? All licensed level two and three hospitals are equipped with isolation rooms uh, in the emergency inpatient departments. So it's interesting that they started rather quickly, you know, and I guess being closer to China and having a, a much um, closer travel uh, corridor, um, you know, they're, they're not as far away, that uh, they started early, um, well before the WHO uh, de declared any cor any sort of uh, pandemic. Um, on March 12th, which is the day after the WHO declared a uh, global pandemic, um, the president of the Philippines announced a, announced a halt on domestic land, sea, and air travel to and from Manila, so effectively isolating the city and uh, stopping anyone from coming in and anyone from leaving and spreading the uh, the uh, virus around and early uh, early on they already had people in the government uh, apparently two senators and two senate staffers uh, contracted the, uh, uh, the the coronavirus uh, 
And it sadly, um, Anjali also reports that according to the Philippine Medical Association, doctors who had treated patients with COVID-19 are, and I quote, dying in an alarming rate. Um, which is sad because these are the people we rely on, rely on to help us when we're sick, not just with coronavirus, but anything. And they're the ones that are, are being hap- impacted right off the bat. So um, there, there was also, she also makes note that uh, according to Human Rights Watch, since March 2020, the arrest and temporary detention of people for violating curfews and quarantine regulations have crowded jails which can further increase the COVID-19 cases. And there have been instances already where some uh, low offender uh, prisoners in various countries, including uh, Canada and U.S. and uh, a few other places, um, they've let some of these people go and serve their sentences under house arrest. So to minimize you know, the impact uh, of coronavirus, especially these people that may have underlying health concerns, uh, you know, bronchitis or diabetes or something along those lines, um, that could actually, you know, uh, die from coronavirus. So that's the Philippines. Now let's move to the next one on the list, and it is Northern Cyprus. And this was submitted by Yusef Ecker. I hope I'm saying these names right, so please forgive me if I'm not. Um, the TRNC, which I believe is the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. So if I say TRNC, that's uh, what I'm alluding to. Um, he uh, provides uh, an interesting um, overview of what happened in Northern Turkey, uh, sorry, Northern Cyprus, because they discovered that their first death and their first um account of coronavirus wasn't actually from uh, their own citizenship or their own area. It came from uh, German tourists uh, that came to uh, northern Cyprus and had uh, the symptoms of coronavirus, got sick, and um, they were quarantined. And uh, I think, I know I had it highlighted here somewhere, but one or two people uh, actually died uh, from the coronavirus, and their so their first deaths were not actually citizens. Um, they he does go on to say that due to the size of the country and uh, able to shut its borders because it is it's a small area that uh, they've been able to, uh, according to the newsletter here, up to a point, uh, control uh, the outbreak. Not let anybody in, not let anybody out, no crossing borders, you know, tourists, people are held up in uh, hotels and dormitories to make sure that, you know, people that are showing symptoms um, or if they're tourists, you know, that have come into the country aren't traveling around with uh, more. And considering that their first deaths were with tour- tourists, it's not surprising that, uh, you know, a lot of uh, tourists were actually quarantined within their hotels and could not travel around the rest of the country. That kind of makes sense. You know, you don't want people who have the uh, symptoms to be wandering around within your uh, country, spreading that. The next one to uh, talk about is uh, South Africa. Now, I know I talked about uh, South Africa a bit in the uh, first, uh, well, the first part of uh, this this discussion. Um, but this article was submitted by Charlie Ann uh, Pafidis 
and Joanna Bezerra. Hopefully I'm saying those names right again, and my apologies if I'm not. Uh, she does, or they do both go on to talk about the uh, water problems uh, that South Africa has with drought and uh, the distribution of water and the availability. And if you want to know more information on that, I did speak to Professor Roman Tanlich, um, and his show was actually July 25th, 2019, where we talked about that, how South Africa is dealing with that water, sh- water shortages and some of the things they put in place to deal with that. So if you're interested in uh, finding out more information on that, please go back to uh, that show and listen to uh, the chat Roman and I have. And that's again, is July 25th, 2019. It's very interesting, a lot of uh, good information. And uh, that is referenced here in the South African uh, article. Um, so uh, now the article itself uh, talks about um, once uh, we finished about the water and uh, you know the other problems South Africa has with the uh, high burden of uh, HIV AIDS and tuberculosis um, and the water supplies, uh, they also have communication issues you know, uh, getting messages out to people. And that's caused uh, quite the challenge for uh, South Africa as well. Um, and I think a lot of it, uh, you know, relates back to, you know, people just don't trust, you know, uh, leading authorities and, and government uh, authorities. So they, you know, don't pay attention or the right message, you know, if they're sending it out by internet and so many people don't have internet or they, uh, you know, don't read or can't read, you know, they're illiterate. Um, sending out pamphlets isn't going to help. You know, posting messages on various social media sites isn't going to help. You know, if they don't have access to, uh, televisions and things like that, well, then posting commercials and public announcements isn't going to help. So communication uh, can be a big, uh, problem. In, uh, uh, there is a comment here. One of the uh, biggest hospitals in the province, uh, one of the provinces, Eastern Cape, uh, let's see, in South Africa, the yeah, poorest provinces, one of the poorest provinces in South Africa, Eastern Cape, uh, one of their hospitals was running at 110% capacity due to COVID-19. Now, for a country that, you know, is not overly rich, um, that's unbelievable, you know, that they, there, there's a lack of equipment it goes on, you know, there's a lack of equipment that uh, due to water, you know, there's hygiene problems as well um, because of the lack of water. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, equipment available for doctors uh, so they're, uh, and nurses, so they're getting sick. The And who, who also, you know, because of the lack of water, you need that water to clean and sanitize. Well, that's not there, so you can't clean. People are getting sick. And they're getting sick in the places that people are going to for help. So uh, South Africa's had a a big challenge uh, with that. Um, Goes on to say that, uh, let's see. Oh, yes. They were were trying to draw on some lessons learned from uh, Ebola. Um, and that actually relates to some of the communication campaigns that, you know, they have to get people out there, you know, to get the message. And I kind of touched on, you know, the lack of uh, internet and television and uh, literacy that is out there. You couldn't just, you know, distribute a pamphlet on people's doors, doorsteps. 
you know, so that goes on. Um, there's even a picture here that of uh, a young student um, who's actually having uh, a, a workshops for local communities, traveling around, giving, you know, different um, uh, perspectives and uh, providing guidance on what people need to do to protect themselves from coronavirus. So it's uh, rather interesting, and uh, hopefully things in uh, South Africa have improved. Um, I know I could uh, do an internet search and find out, but I I said I would only be reporting on what was happening at the outset of the pandemic in these countries, and uh, perhaps maybe at another time uh, could do a follow-up, you know, take some time, do some research, and uh, do a follow-up on where some of these uh, communities stand now. But at that, I've come to the end of the first uh, segment. Uh, we got through a couple more. We still have uh, quite a few more yet to go through. Um, we're talking about the uh, teams, the International Emergency Management Society, part two of some of the challenges and uh, some of the activities, the chapters and countries um, that are related to teams, of course, uh, put in place at the outset of the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic. And I just... I'm not sure if I said it at the beginning, but I think I'll say it now. If you go to the team's website, uh, T-I-E-M-S dot org, you can find uh, a list of newsletters that are there. And this one is there for, um, I think it's the end of April or beginning of May. I forget uh, exactly uh, what the date is on it. But if you look there, you can see all this information uh, there, and you can actually see a bunch of other newsletters that are there as well. So we'll be back with segment two in just a moment. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you know that over 70% of people with disabilities are not counted in the workforce with twice the unemployment rate of the non-disabled? Join Joyce Bender, CEO of Bender Consulting Services and a disability leader as she talks about best practices and newest trends in disability employment on Disability Matters. As a person living with epilepsy and hearing loss, Joyce is an international advocate for disability employment. Tune in on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. What are the labels that identify us? Who are we, and how do we figure out our place in the world? Do we own our narrative? If you were to create your biography today, what would it say about you? Listen for Dropping In with host Diane Dewey, the author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Diane and her guests will give their version of finding themselves. Find out about your authenticity by dropping in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. 
It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back. We are talking about the International Emergency Management Society newsletter on the coronavirus and different perspectives from countries around the globe and how they uh, started to deal with the pandemic at the outset. Um, there's quite a few countries, as I uh, mentioned in the newsletter. So uh, we talked about the Philippines and South Africa in our first segment. And uh, this next one, I really found it's a short uh, article, but I found this really interesting. It's from Kashmir by uh, Shazana Andrabi. There are some comments in here that are really interesting that um, the pandemic, and this is a quote, has not riled us the way it has other countries. And the reason being, they go on to explain, is because they've been in lockdown for a long time. Um, their lockdown, uh, I know there's a date here, uh, is a continuation of what started August 5th, 2019. Obviously, six months, six, seven months before the WHO declared a pandemic. And that was, that's because of some of the arrest, uh, the unrest, I should say, that exists in Kashmir. So people here were, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, used to it, used to being in a lockdown situation. And they, uh, I, I, I like this sentence. While some people in other parts of the world were fighting over toilet paper, we knew what it meant to stock essentials. Food, item, food items that would last longer were stocked, not hoarded, and there were very few or no empty shelves in department stores. It's interesting that a place like Kashmir uh, and this, its citizens were better prepared than you know people in my own country, or you know, or my neighbors, or or first other first world countries. Um, it's rather interesting that. Uh, he, um, and I'm assuming Shazana, um, he or she, I'm not sure. I don't know all some of these people. I've met quite a few of these authors, but uh, I don't know everybody yet. Um, Shazana uh, Andrabi uh, is uh, talking about that they were better prepared. They're used to this, you know, being in a lockdown and some of the arrest, uh, unrest that occurs there. You know, they, they've had extended periods of lockdown where um, people have stockpiled, um, not, sorry, I shouldn't say stockpiled, um, should just say stocked 
you know, stockpiled, uh, people stockpiling makes it sound like they're hoarding. And uh, this article sp- uh, specifically says that's not what occurred, um, but that, that they were prepared, you know, and they, they allowed some people to uh, travel, but o- only within three kilometers of where they uh, lived. And even deliveries were not allowed to go uh, beyond that radius, you know, and hence um, uh, it's kind of what's happening with a lot of uh, places here, um, even around where I live here in Canada, that, you know, people are buying more local, you know, suppliers are more local. They're not shipping things in from the other side of uh, the world anymore. They're seeing if they can get it here, you know, so reducing that uh, travel and exposure. And uh, it, it actually says that, you know, um, so it, it's rather uh, interesting, you know, um, that uh, cashmere. Uh, was prepared, you know, and as I say, it's a very short article. It's only three paragraphs, uh, three, four paragraphs. So, um, but I just really found that interesting. Uh, the next is uh, Croatia uh, by Shnezana uh, Knezic. And uh, Shnezana is actually on the board of directors for teams. And she talks about Croatia. Um, because this is April, I will go through some of the, the, uh, where things stood at uh, the the end of April, mid to the end of April, and from her experience uh, so far, the number of uh, persons infected uh, is relatively stable. Shortages shortages of any kind to deal with testing and uh, uh, the hospitalized individuals. Um, at the time, there were no uh, significant shortages. They seemed to be uh, well prepared. Uh, plans for the future, um, if the number of persons infected uh, decreases, then they will start opening things up. And we know now that things have started to open up, not just in Croatia, but uh, in other places, which is already showing um, not to be the best idea. Uh, we're already seeing, uh, just today, I heard about a hot spot in uh, China again, uh, I believe it was Beijing Market. They've uh, shut down things, um, just cordoned off the area, shut it all down because there's uh, a new outbreak. And some of the cities in the United States where uh, they'd started to open things up, now they're starting to get a spike again. Um, So uh, hopefully not everyone is going to be doing that. You know, we are going to get this second wave. Um, We know it's coming, uh, unfortunately. Uh, Shnezana's... uh, piece is rather short as well, but uh, hopefully everything is going well in uh, Croatia right now. We also have uh, Belgium, and uh, the Belgium section has a lot of graphs. They really, really uh, tracked, you know, they even have um, statistics broken down by how many men uh, and women you know, uh, have coronavirus and by age groups, uh, 0 to 9, 10 to 19, 20 to 29, right up to 90 plus. Uh, interesting that uh, um, there there were 657 men over the age of 90 that had uh, coronavirus and 1,555 women over the age of 90 that had coronavirus um, a, at the end of April. Uh, I, I didn't know there would be that many people over that age. That's uh, quite staggering, um, surprising. But they have a, a lot of statistics, statistics broken down uh, as to how uh, people have been infected uh, and 
uh, how things are being managed in Belgium. Um, they do have, uh, Belgium did allow people to, um, I don't want to say wander around. Um, let's read their sentence instead so I, so I use the right words. Uh, people are only allowed to be outside as long as it takes to run, walk, or cycle. People also need to keep moving and not sit around in parks, for example. So they let people uh, outside, but in smaller groups, and you couldn't just hang around. So if you went to the park, you had to keep moving, walk around the park, you know, and go back home. You couldn't go to the park, sit down on a bench. Um, at least that's the way I interpret it uh, here. And uh, apparently they, uh, there's a mention of here of so-called uh, lockdown parties. Um, where people were holding parties to celebrate the lockdown. Well, obviously that's not a good idea because you've got a bunch of people hanging around and possibly infecting each other. So that uh, posed a problem for those in uh, Belgium at the start of this uh, lockdown, um, which is uh, rather interesting. I'm really not sure why people would want to celebrate a pandemic. Um that kind of makes no logical sense uh, to me, uh, but for whatever reason, I guess uh, some people thought it was a, a time to celebrate. You know, and uh, at the end of the uh, Belgium uh, submission, I, did I mention who submitted the article? Uh, Carmelo uh, Demaro, that's who s submitted. Sorry, sorry, Carmelo. Um, at the end, and this is going to come as no surprise because we're hearing about it nonstop here in Canada, the U.S., uh, throughout Europe, and many other countries. This sentence, As in many other countries around the world, Belgium has faced a shortage of personal protective equipment such as respirators, surgical masks, or face shields and testing kits. This is right in April. Well, this show is now airing... Um, what's, what's today's date? Uh, July 9th and we're still experiencing that think about that for a second this is the beginning sorry the end of April and Belgium is experiencing uh, PPE uh, issues personal protective equipment for um, people healthcare workers you know who, whoever is dealing with the public and we're three months later and we're still dealing with the same thing Incredible. Really incredible. Um, the next one is also by Carmelo, and this is for Luxembourg. There was, um, there, let's see, there's an interesting point here. Um, yes, here it is. Uh, lessons learned so far. So this is lessons learned so far from uh, April uh, for Luxembourg. I'm going to uh, read the paragraph because uh, this is, I don't know if everyone is familiar with Luxembourg, but it's a very small uh, a country um, in Europe. Um, uh, very small, actually. Um, and you'll find out how small it is uh, with this paragraph. Much of Luxembourg's workforce comes on a daily basis from neighboring countries. The restrictions applied at the different national borders, ha borders had to be agreed for the management of workers from abroad. The Luxembourg government had has issued a specific work certificate which makes commuters exempt from border crossing restrictions. 
This aspect has required the verification of different types of agreements with foreign workers and with the governments of the countries of origin, especially with regard to health protection and respect for salary and tax compliance. So to get into um, Luxembourg and work in Luxembourg, who relies on outside workers, special certificates had to be uh, issued. Now, I can't imagine uh, the rush to to get that pulled together, small country or not, um, finding out who all these workers are, issuing certificates and getting all the right information so that they're all validated and people can come and go, um, at least essential people that have been classed as, uh, you know, essential workers. You know, uh, maybe others could stay at home, but still, that had to have been quite the challenge to pull together for, for Luxembourg. Large or small country, it makes no difference. Um, that would be quite the challenge for them. And Carmelo uh, actually also wrote for the Netherlands. So obviously, uh, Carmelo took care of uh, the Benelux area, Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg. Um, one thing that Carmelo mentions with the ne- Netherlands is that at the time this article was uh, put together, up to 28% of the confirmed COVID-19 patients reported are known to be healthcare workers. That's huge. You know, almost a third, you know, 30, almost 30% of workers in the Netherlands are the people who are getting coronavirus. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, in other countries, that's the same case. I know quite a few here in Canada and the U.S., same thing, especially with the comments I said earlier about the protective wear not being available. That's uh, that's kind of really in- in- interesting to hear. There's Again, there's uh, graphs and uh, how things are broken down. Now, I don't know all the uh, names of these graphs because some of them are actually in <laughs> Dutch, and I'm not very good at reading that. So uh, I'm not even going to try, but I, I do recommend taking a look at... Um, the the uh, newsletter itself and taking a look at some of these graphs and seeing where the spikes occurred um you know during uh, specific times you know the number of uh, deaths um i'm assuming just by you know trying to translate some of these uh what these graphs mean um there was an interesting uh, comment at the end of the netherlands article um, when operating at full capacity, the Netherlands can handle about 17,500 tests per day. Now, that's tests for the coronavirus. Um, but I don't quite understand the next part. If necessary, the labs can increase testing capacity to about 29,000 test cases per day. Well, if you can do um, testing at 29,000, 29,000 test cases per day, you know, if required, I'm not quite sure how 17,500 then can be considered full capacity. Uh, Maybe that's, you know, not rushing. Maybe it's not having everyone dedicated or or something along those lines. But that's a big difference. You know, um, 10, 11,000, you know, uh, case, test case uh, difference uh, per day. So I thought that I wasn't quite sure if there was a typo there or if there was a little bit of information that might be missing. You know, people are redirected from other functions uh, to focus on testing. Um, I wasn't quite sure, but either way, I found the uh, 
that rather interesting that uh, there would be that much of a, a difference in numbers. And uh, the next one, the country is Italy. And this was submitted by Sandro Bologna, uh, Simona Cavallini, and uh, Vittorio uh, Rosado. And Sandro um, Bologna is on the team's board of directors as well. In fact, uh, you may come across his name every so often on the team site. He is heavily involved with pulling together the team's uh, certification process and uh, the uh, TQC, I think it is, team's uh, qualification certification. Um, I forgot the, my apologies, uh, Sandro, for the full name, but uh, there is a certification teams is pulling together and uh, he's the main uh, driver for that and pulling it all together. Now, I don't think it's any news uh, to anyone that uh, Italy uh, was uh, one of the uh, biggest hit countries uh, after China. Um, it was staggering how fast and how widespread it uh, affected Italy. Um, thousands of people uh, were obviously infected and many more, um, not many more thousands, but there were thousands of people that unfortunately perished um, due to contracting the uh, coronavirus. Um, let's see, is there, I, I know almost everything with Italy has been in the headlines uh, already. Uh, so I don't really want to repeat what some of the news stations are saying, uh, but there is a note here that their first official COVID-19 case was de detected February 21st. And remember, in relation to the WHO, who declared a pandemic March 11th, things obviously escalated very quickly. Um, I think part of that is the culture in Italy where people are so close, and I don't mean just living, but I mean uh, like neighbors, but I mean they are a very close-knit uh, community, you know, families that live together and, you know, communities that uh, celebrate. I've been there and I really found it, um, uh, their their culture, you know, it, you weren't, you were never alone. There was always somebody there, you know, waving hello, saying hello, talking to you, you know, and they're very close-knit um, uh, culture. So, um, unfortunately, that proved to be uh, a bit of a downfall, um, which created the spread of COVID-19, sadly. Um, it's very unfortunate. Um, they did, uh, the Italian Civil Protection uh, Group was in charge of coordinating emergency management for it. And uh, they took care of a lot of what was happening in Italy. And we also know that, you know, some things worked and some things didn't. You know, there were a lack of beds in intensive care units um, for hospitals that were affected. Um, you know, there were shortages of test kits and uh, what they call them, there's certain kind of swabs. Um, I know it's written here. Uh, pharyngeal swabs. I'm not sure if I'm saying the word right. Pharyngeal swabs, you know, the shortage of that to, to be able to perform the tests, you know, and all this, all these different little things, you know, unfortunately impacted uh, Italy and sadly quite a few people, you know, perished as a result. Um, and there was a lot of, uh, uh, Sandro goes on to say there was a lot of confusion at higher levels, you know, with how to uh, maintain the uh, 
management of the coronavirus, you know, who was in charge and who should be doing what, what policies needed to be implemented, who was implementing them. And there, there was some confusion back and forth, you know, between regions, you know, at the federal level and, uh, you know, provincial or state level, you know, in the cities and all that added up, unfortunately, to, um, you know, some problems in Italy. But anyway, on that, we've come to the end of our second segment. Uh, we've talked a little bit more of what was going on in some of these countries at the outset of COVID-19. And we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you know that over 70% of people with disabilities are not counted in the workforce with twice the unemployment rate of the non-disabled? Join Joyce Bender, CEO of Bender Consulting Services and a disability leader as she talks about best practices and newest trends in disability employment on Disability Matters. As a person living with epilepsy and hearing loss, Joyce is an international advocate for disability employment. Tune in on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. What are the labels that identify us? Who are we and how do we figure out our place in the world? Do we own our narrative? If you were to create your biography today, what would it say about you? Listen for Dropping In with host Diane Dewey, the author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Diane and her guests will give their version of finding themselves. Find out about your authenticity by dropping in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the final uh, segment. Uh, we're talking today 
about the International Emergency Management Society and their newsletter that they put out uh, at the outset of the coronavirus uh, back in April uh, from the chapters around the world and some of the things that uh, were occurring in some of the chapter uh, countries. All the articles uh, you can find online uh, in the newsletter, uh, just go to the team's website, TIEMS.org, and uh, you can uh, just do a search and you'll find all the newsletters that are posted there, including this one uh, dated in uh, April 2020. Okay, now well, there it is, right at the top of the heading. Why didn't I just look there? Anyway, um, I guess it's been a long day. Uh, let's get to... The next country, um, we only have a couple left to uh, go through, um, and the next one is from Ukraine, and it's submitted by Andre Sandberg and Olena uh, Mazel-Yukivska. Uh, I hope I said that name right. My apologies if I did not. Now, if memory serves correct, uh, Ukraine had some challenges, um, uh, and it didn't seem as though they were managing the uh, COVID-19 situation very well. Um, I believe uh, what ended up happening in, in this article uh, is that the uh, Ministry of Health um, took over the running of the uh, COVID-19 uh, response um, because nobody else really stood up. It makes sense that it would be the Ministry of Health, in my opinion. However, you'd think, you know, um, somebody higher up, president or, or someone along those lines would have stood up to uh, take charge, but apparently uh, that didn't happen uh, Ukraine in Ukraine. Hopefully that did change. Uh, there's an interesting point here that regarding COVID-19 and the emergency response uh, in the Ukraine, there were 17 ministries that were involved. Now try try coordinating that. And not only that, there were an additional, I think it's four, additional four, uh, the Office of the President of U Ukraine, the State Commission, um, the National Security and Defense Council, and Ministry of Digital Transformation were also involved. So we've got, uh, what's that, 21? 21 different ministries, all trying to, uh, at the outset, trying to manage what was going on. That's probably what caused some of the problems Ukraine uh, encountered at the outset of Corona uh, 19, uh, uh, coronavirus, COVID-19 pandemic. But uh, eventually it did settle down to just the uh, Minister of Health who uh, took the overall leadership. So uh, luckily everybody uh, eventually, you know, uh, got to that point. Um they were told, uh, I haven't mentioned this in any other ones, but right, right away one of the first things they did is that everyone must wear a mask or a respirator in public places. Now, none of the other articles uh, that I recall said that. So I found that uh, rather interesting that one of the first things uh, they did uh, as of April, mid-April uh, was to ensure that everyone had a mask you know, and wore it in public places. Uh, none, none of the other ones I said uh, did that. And people over the age of 60 were told they had to stay home because they were at a higher risk. So um, they had no choice. They, they stayed home and, you know, um, I guess, you know, they got delivery services or neighbors, you know, left things on their front doorstep uh, to help out. Uh, I'm not sure how that uh, was handled, but it'd be interesting to uh, find out. Um, and it goes on to say that... Uh, 
people um, that were in isolation uh, could not go anywhere uh, within two kilometers of their house. So that you could only shop at stores within, you know, this, I guess, the circle, you know, um, and I think I mentioned that uh, in the last segment, so that, uh, you know, you weren't spreading the coronavirus to other communities and other people, but you just stayed within your certain uh, area. And at all times, you had to wear your mask. So even if you were in isolation or quarantined, you were still kind of traveling uh, a little bit and, and you had to wear a mask, though, you know, the... And a couple of other points that uh, are in the Ukraine section is uh, pharmaceuticals and uh, uh, protective gear um, that were being imported or were being purchased by anybody, whether it was coming from another country to help healthcare workers or people in the country already uh, buying for themselves, all the tax wa uh, was VAT exempt. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, if I recall, VAT is a value-added tax. Um, they were all tax exempt, which, you know, hopefully, uh, that's, that's what should happen. Um, there was also some problem, uh, with, uh, I mentioned, uh, prisons as well, and that seemed to, uh, of occur here where, um, that if you were caught, uh, violating, you know, the restrictions that were put in place, you know, going outside of your two, two kilometer zone, you know, um, not working from uh, home, but still traveling and taking transit and going into offices, you could actually be put up to three in, in put in prison for up to three years for violating uh, these rules. Now, I find that interesting because uh, earlier on I said that uh, you know some places were actually not putting people in jails because of the fear of those confined spaces spreading coronavirus much quicker. So it's interesting that the opposite of that was occurring uh, or had occurred. I don't know if it continued, but potentially could have occurred in uh, the Ukraine. And uh, I think that's about it for the Ukraine. Um, most everything else I've kind of already said. Um, uh, though there is uh, an interesting comment from uh, Andre in the conclusion here. And this kind of says it all, almost for every country. And uh, everyone's response, the COVID-19 crisis in Ukraine is still underestimated. And that's so true. Now that we're getting a second wave, you know, it's starting to occur. You know, uh, it, it's really un underestimated. People are wanting to get back to work, get economies up and running. But if you can't manage the... Uh, your people and uh, keep them safe. I really don't know how you're going to get an economy up and running. You know, um, you're just, what you're doing is just putting the dollar value uh, to people's lives. But, oh well. You know, we'll see what goes on. We, we've still got months to go yet. Um, and hopefully things will change and uh, governments will uh, adapt accordingly. The next uh, article is Thailand. And it was submitted by uh, Churchzak Virapat. Um, a lot of what's said here has been said in other uh, articles as well. Um, there is nothing, uh, n nothing different here, but there is something that I did want to point out that no other article had said, and this was the government of Thailand 
uh, closed. They're the only one that mentioned this. They closed a lot of uh, large gathering spaces like boxing events, uh, some sort of other sporting events, places of gathering, um, you know, were all closed. It's interesting. None of the articles, uh, other articles said that, but Thailand mentions that they did, you know, uh, close all of those different events so that uh, the spread could be restricted. Um, and everything else in the Thailand's, uh, I think I've said before, so I'm not really not going to go over to the challenges with PPE and, uh, you know, people having to wear masks and things. The last, I think this is the last country is, uh, or in the article, I should say, it's not the last country, but the last one mentioned here in the newsletter is the United States submitted by, uh, Jerry Sikich. um, this is in the headlines all over the place. Uh, originally, the United States downplayed what uh, COVID-19 was and what it was going to do, you know, and uh, after a couple of cases, it, it's captured on film, you know, it's just the flu, it'll go away, you know, and it'll be done in no time. And as of today, there were over 115,000 deaths. So, uh, in, people weren't really adhering to uh, guidance, you know, uh, when it finally did kick in. Um, some did, some didn't. Um, we see that all, all over the place. And uh, unfortunately, you know, the United States, I think, has, uh, uh, what, 360 million people, you know, and 115,000 deaths. And uh, some areas now are spiking once again. You know, simply because of the, um, uh, you know, opening up the economy and letting people wander around again. So, uh, you know, I, I, there's so many things I could say of what's happening, and maybe I, I'm a little more concerned because, you know, I'm just north of the uh, the border and know that uh, if things get out of control um, south of us, um, it always comes up north and we get impacted. So... I'm hoping that things change, you know, um, in the United States and, uh, you know, they get on a better path. Uh, I do know their doctor, Anthony Fucci, has been doing a fantastic job. Uh, people don't like some of the things he has to say, but he's being brutally honest. And uh, I think I think that's what's needed, you know, some great leadership there. So that's the uh, newsletter. I really urge you to take a look and uh, read through um, and get some of these details of uh, you know what what some of these countries did and implemented right off right off the bat, and maybe it'll answer some of the questions why other countries haven't been faring so well. You know because they didn't do some of these things or they underestimated, as I mentioned earlier. I do want to make mention um, that the team's annual conference, if it goes ahead, you know, is uh, scheduled this year for uh, November eighteenth to the twentieth in Paris. I've got a feeling that uh, it may become a virtual conference uh, because uh, travel restrictions are still in place. And if you book hotels or uh, airfares and they get canceled, you may not get your money back. Uh, I've already encountered that once, so um, I don't know yet if I'll be going. But uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, you know, let's be positive. Things go well and we can. So... Take a look. Go to the website, teams.org, T-I-E-M-S dot org. I want to thank everybody at uh, Stone Road for sponsoring today's show. 
And uh, in the meantime, everyone, stay prepared. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.